Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 59 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So as is often the case, I start and stop and start and stop sometimes several times in recording podcast episodes. And I started and stopped this one several times because I felt like I was just rambling on and sort of talking about boring things. And it made me just sort of sit back and reflect a little bit on the purpose of my podcast, why I'm sharing stories from my life, why I feel that the normal parts of my life are boring and seem rambly to me, and just how I was feeling about the whole thing in general. So I stopped. And I put the podcast recording aside and I have a the whole day to myself. I have a meeting with my editor in about an hour from where I'm starting this. So I'm a bit under the gun now to be efficient. But I went back and re-looked at things. I looked at other episode ideas. I went into my Slack and my Asana, two tools that I use in this, this journey of mine to stay organized and watched some helpful videos that my editor sent me. I re-looked at goals. I thumbed through things I had written down. I just sort of re-centered myself a little bit. And one of the things I watched was a summation of a book called Atomic Habits. Well, this is a book that it's actually a really wonderful book. And I started reading it months ago. And of course, I'm halfway through and I have not finished the book. I need the book. My ever-intuitive editor sent a YouTuber, a video of someone that read the book and then sort of summarizes the book and goes through some of the key points of the book. It was awesome just what I needed. But what came to mind for me is a couple of things. And and I'll go back to my former principal, Clint Cogswell, and how he said that if I compared teaching children to coaching runners, I would improve as a teacher. And so I began to do that and I improved as a teacher. I'm all over the place here in this in this podcast journey and editing my book and starting an online presence and developing a career as a public speaker, perhaps. I'm everywhere. And I'm not thinking about it like a fitness goal or a running goal. I'm looking at it as I don't know what I'm doing. Somebody help me, which is a very, very sort of helpless stance to take in starting something new. The other piece of me is I can very easily lay down the steps athletically. You know, first you run three miles and then you average five miles, then you average seven miles. And, you know, it's this logical finite number that you build up until you can run your marathon distance 26 miles. When it comes to all I'm doing here, I feel like it should all be done already. Like it should somehow be better. And I have a hard time figuring out in my new life, what is a three-mile run? Is a three-mile run spending an hour a day working on all of this stuff? It's hard for me to sort of wrap my head around it. What does this have to do with episode 59? Well, episode 58, as you know, was really somewhere after I graduated high school in the first semester of my freshman year in college. And it was a time of transition for sure, but it was a really normal time of transition. As difficult as my life has been, and as much as I look back on myself and look at myself as damaged somehow by what has happened to me and the decisions I've made, I had a pretty pretty normal time. And this episode is going to quickly finish my freshman year and really jump into my sophomore year of college, 
which like my sophomore year of high school had some tremendous gains in it, unbelievable gains and growths and actually nothing too damaging. You know, nothing, no highs and lows really, mostly just highs. My sophomore year in college was a wonderful time. And so I'm just gonna walk through that experience for myself. Part of that is I became a division one All-American. That isn't something that a lot of people can say they have done. And so that was the year that I did this. And so this podcast will include that experience, which, which was a pretty significant experience. It's also just a chance for me to reflect upon the fact that I am hardest on myself. And sometimes if I'm too self-critical, I quit. I just stop. What does it matter? I don't care. And I take that very, very defeatist attitude. And I know that we all do that. When life gets hard, sometimes it's easy to just sit back and say, fuck it. I don't like being that way, but sometimes I am. And I'm so willing to believe the people who are awful to me. I could have 50 people comment to me positively about a podcast episode or a CrossFit workout or something I've done. And one negative comment from Roy when he was in my life, from Robin when she was in my life, and I was ruined for days and days and days. I look for you know, the buildup and the compliments and the, you're doing awesome, sometimes from the people I know aren't going to give it to me. And what's behind that? And I think sometimes we all do that. We're so much more willing to believe the one negative comment as opposed to all the wonderful comments. And then, of course, I perseverate a bit on people I know and love could also be you know, suffering at the hands of those negative people that create a vision of their world that suits them, even if it hurts other people, which then makes me look at myself and am I doing those things? Self-reflection has been a huge piece of this process. And the more I talk about my life and all that's gone on in it, the more I realize that all this self-reflective work is a clear indicator that, that my desire is not to hurt anybody. Doesn't mean I don't hurt people, but my desire is to be helpful and to better myself and to be a better person. That's my, my bizarre opening. So two days from now, we head off to Kenny's mother's funeral and then on our trip to Florida. I'm getting ahead enough in my podcast episodes that I will not overburden my editor when I come back and, and I'm two days away from the deadline. So this will put me, this episode will put us to the middle of October, picking up where I left off from episode 58. I mentioned in that episode that when I went home for Christmas, I packed all my stuff and I was never going back. I did go back, obviously, and I went back with half the stuff. And I went back with a renewed sense of commitment to being a college student. I had mentioned that Jay and I spent all this time together on weekends and that I never had time to myself. I never had, you know, just normal college weekends. I was so disconnected from so much of what went on because I was only at school, sometimes Monday morning early till Friday night. And I was missing all of that social time. Obviously, when I had cross-country meets and was traveling with the team, I was there. But oftentimes, Jay would come and take me home. My very first ever cross-country meet my freshman year was at Dartmouth College. I maneuvered the track coach to stop halfway up from Boston to Concord. You drive to Concord, where I live. Then you turn left on Route 89 to drive to Hanover, where Dartmouth College is. So we stopped and had pizza and pasta and dinner. And then, of course, Jay's running store was two doors down, so we surprised him. And then the next day was my race in Hanover. He was a huge piece of the whole, the whole reality of my life. But it was a reminder sometimes that once again, I had something that set me apart, that kept me sort of not fitting in to the reality in which I lived. And I had spent my whole life feeling like an outsider, you know, kept sort of setting up ways that I continued this feeling. Everyone else had either had no boyfriend or a college boyfriend, 
And maybe their boyfriend was far away, but they were the same age and going through the same experiences. And, you know, I had a boyfriend that owned a running store and, you know, had been married and divorced. You know, I had his ex-wife for art in seventh grade. Like, it was all just weird. When I went back to second semester freshman year, so it was the winter of 1982, Jay and I agreed that I would spend three weekends a, a month at school and I would come home one weekend a month. In those three weeks that I wasn't traveling back to Concord all the time, they would either come down or even if it wasn't an overnight, we would get together and do something, you know, so maybe we'd meet for dinner. Again, we're talking about a time where the only way you could talk to somebody was on a landline. So if you weren't near a phone, there was no way to talk to somebody. So making plans was a bit different. You had to commit to them and set them up. And there wasn't a way to bail out at the last minute. There was no five minute text that said, "Never mind, I can't make it. That was actually better. When I went back to college, I felt much more renewed to being a part of the college process. And I had a social group now because I was doing things with everybody. So I started to get to know the track team members better. I started to get to know the men's track team members better. You know, track and field meets occurred together. You know, soccer, for example, the men's soccer team and the women's soccer team don't ever play their games together. But a track meet has both genders together. The men's mile and the women's mile, the men's 5K, the women's 5K, it's all together. That was really a very exciting piece for me, a very exciting way for me to get back into the routine of things. My foot was still really, really hurt. So I did not run indoor track as a freshman. I watched, I watched and went to a lot of the meets and as involved as I could be and really rehabbed and worked to get my foot better. And that was okay. I mean, I, I wanted to be more involved, but I made sure I was just a part of the whole program. I also started going to some other social events that were off campus, like running parties and events and things. As I said, Bob Seveny, the men's coach, was very affiliated with Nike. And Athletics West was a running club. And, and really, really good runners ran for Athletics West. And I remember meeting a guy, Mark, who was an 800-meter runner for Athletics West. He, years later, he would become a track and field coach at a couple of colleges in Boston and then move up to a college in Maine. And we've maintained contact over the years. But he was, he was sort of the first person I met that I thought potentially I could have a romantic interest in. And again, five years older than me, already out of college. Like, I just seemed to choose all the time People that were ahead of me in life were older than me. And that relationship never really took hold. It came and went and came and went. But it was a much more normal feeling. I started going to track team parties and, and meeting the sprinters and the jumpers and the throwers. And that was a lot of fun as well. I would say as much as my running was frustrating the rest of my freshman year, I felt better about everything. I felt like I fit in. I felt like I was living the role I was supposed to live. I lived in my dorm. I made really good friends with a, a boy a boy named Todd Huntley. Hi, Todd, if you're listening out there. He lives in Kansas, I think. We did German together and we became really good friends. We went to the movies a few times. We always called ourselves continental. <laughs> he reminds me of a friend of mine have here, Paul Brogan. Todd was just so, so classy and so funny and he loved movies. And we went to the movie Reds together and we just did all these, we just did these fun things. We introduced me to the North End. Here's somebody from Kansas and he introduces me to these fancy restaurants in the North End. It was a wonderful time. And we hung out together. He didn't come back to BU, which broke my heart, but he was just a really fun part of what I remember of my freshman year. Adam Horvitz, Beastie Boys singer, lived in my dorm at BU freshman year. At the time, it meant nothing to me, but in the years since then, it's like, oh yeah. The rest of that year was much better. I finally should have felt like I fit in. Spring track arrived, outdoor track. I was running enough that I was put into a, a couple of meets. I remember feeling badly about it because it ruined my chance to redshirt the season, which is fine. I had, didn't run indoors. So I knew that should I stay a fifth year, I could have another chance to have that indoor track season. 
the way that NCAA eligibility works is you have four years of eligibility and you have five years in which to complete them. If you have an injury and you sit out, it's called redshirting. So I redshirted indoor track and I ran a few meets of outdoor track. But I started to get fit again. So when I left freshman year and came home, I was feeling much better about my role as a runner at BU. And I continued racing into the summer. I wanted to have some sort of season. I wanted to do well. And so I sort of made the mistake of having Jay, who I was dating at the time, train me, write out some workouts and coach me. And I ran, I went to Canada and ran a track meet. I ended up getting tripped in the race and falling down. I'll never forget. I was so disappointed because I was running really well and I just wanted to vindicate myself. And I couldn't seem to make it happen. <laughs> and I ran the 1500 and tripped and fell and had to get up and keep going. And I remember this was a not a healthy thing in my relationship with Jay. And he got very upset with me that I didn't do well. He was angry and you know, I didn't mean to fall, but you know, in his mind, I just wasn't focused and all of these things were happening. I ran some track meets in Boston. I ran some all-comers meets in a track meet called the Kendall Women's Classic. That will always have a warm place in my heart. Marty Che and I went to it together. She came with me one year and it was at BU. That was the summer between our junior and senior year. It's funny because we sat on the track right outside of the dormitory we would both live in two years later and talked about who would want to go to college where your track was under a highway <laughs> and your dorm was a high rise. And we were there two years later. I remember, I remember we reminisced about that. But I ran in that meet three, four years in a row. It was a wonderful meet gone by Conventures and a woman named Dusty Rhodes. No lie, that's her name. She was terrific. All of that came along. I was, I was in a much more regular sort of mind frame and I was healthy again. My plantar fasciitis and my foot was gone or manageable anyway. It never really goes away once you get it. I ran in the summer and I time off and then I started the distance in the building for cross country. So when I came back in the fall of 1982 as a sophomore, my parents brought me and dropped me off. My dad walked to Fenway Park and bought a ticket to go in and watch the game. That's how easy Red Sox teams were to get into back then. They weren't doing so great. I moved back into Rich Hall and I moved into a, a room, but I didn't have a roommate, although it was a double. But I didn't want to live there. I had signed up for an apartment and then I had taken my name off the list and I don't remember the details of why. Maybe perhaps I thought I wasn't going to go back. I don't know. I panicked though. And so I ended up going to housing and somehow talking my way into an apartment. And so I moved in and I had a roommate who lasted about a week. She was an older woman, very, very intense, older. She was probably 25 or 26. But again, here she is living with a with a 19-year-old and two 21-year-olds. And she's an adult going back to college. And I think she thought she wanted to live on campus. I don't know. But she was my roommate. And then my other two roommates were Karen and Rhonda, two amazing girls from New Jersey who were seniors. So when my roommate moved away, suddenly I have, I have my own room. They were never quite okay with that. I had the best time living with these women. Here I am, I'm living in an apartment right in the heart of BU, two stories up from a bar called The Dugout, which still exists, but it's closed now. I should win the lottery and open that bar. It was such a great place. And I'm just in the thick of it. I have other track team friends that live two buildings down and another one that lives two buildings up. Right next door was David, Mark, and Daryl. So they had an apartment and their apartment was this amazing, amazing apartment. I don't know how they got it, but it was also an amazing apartment. I remember just feeling like I had arrived. It, it felt like it did when I first ran spring track in high school, where I finally had a group in which I fit. And it just felt wonderful. So the cross country season was actually fairly successful. That year, a girl named Linda joined our team. And she, in looking back over our BU years, even though she wasn't part of that initial seven, she feels like it because she just was immediately a part of the team. She just fit in immediately and immediately became, you know, a top five runner and performer. 
And so she joined right in to the whole reality of BU cross country and track. She was from Connecticut, came from a Catholic high school background, and we would often sing Billy Joel songs and that sort of stuff. There we were, you know, she's an incoming freshman. She lived up in the dorms. Donna still lived in the dorms, I believe. Alyssa lived in the apartments near me. We all just sort of jumped into our sophomore year, the group of us. And cross country was fairly successful. The other thing that was happening at that time, my running is back on track. My classes were much better. I had a much better handle on how to succeed academically. And I was much more now into my education classes. So sometimes that would be once a week for three hours. So because a lot of people went to school to be teachers were already working professionals, a lot of the classes were in the evenings, like four o'clock to seven o'clock or six o'clock to nine o'clock or five o'clock to eight o'clock. I had all of these classes now once a week. So four classes, potentially I could have four days of school or two classes, two days a week. So both semesters that year, I had unbelievably easy schedules where I had two days of classes and that was it. And I had five days off, two weekend days and three weekdays of no classes. Again, I took a lot of time making myself disciplined enough to not just waste the time because it's easy to not do anything. I have all this free time. I'll do my homework tomorrow. You know, when you're busy all the time, you need to get things done. At least that's me. If I have an hour to get 50 things done, I get 50 things done in the hour. If I have 50 hours to get one thing done, I don't complete it. It's just my nature sometimes. So all of that was going well. I was settling back into college. I was feeling like I really belonged running-wise and group-wise. My academics were, were smoothing out. And I was ending my relationship with Jay. And that was painful because he didn't want to end the relationship. Us getting together in the first place, it was, as usual with me, a very traumatic beginning. Trauma bonding seems to be something that has gone on with me for my entire life. And so when it really became clear that it was, we were waning, that, that I was, you know, separating, it was hard on Jay. It was hard on me. I mean, I, you know, I had committed myself to this person. He had given me a beautiful ring, which I still have, and said that he wanted to marry me and spend his life with me. Those were intense times. I remember in my early years being married to Eric, I told this story. I threw away all the letters from him, all these amazing letters that Jay had written to me that I would love to have now. That breaks my heart still. And I remember one of them ended with, someday when our hair has turned to gray, I will be sharing these thoughts with you or something like this. And it was just this commitment that we would be together forever. And, you know, at 18, you're too darn young, I think, for the most part, to make those commitments. Some people do. I agree. Some people do. But I was not one of those people. And so that relationship ended. And Jay ended up moving to New Jersey. We had some friends in New Jersey. They came up to Concord for a couple of years, went to Franklin Pierce Law Center. So they lived in Concord for a year. And then they lived in Lake, New Jersey. So we had these New Jersey connections and we would go down there sometimes and visit. So an opportunity came available for Jay to move to New Jersey and work in a running store there and reinvent his life. And so he moved. And that was in part because of the breakup, but it was perfect because it gave him freedom to heal and to do what he needed to do to move forward in his life. And it gave me the chance to really just be an unattached college student. And I will tell you, it was a very, very good move for me partying and drinking and all of the things that were so prevalent with college-age kids in the 80s. Remember, the drinking age now, I was at BU, was 20. So I was still too young to drink, but, you know, in Vermont, it was still 18. There was no nationwide drinking age of 21 until I turned 20, and I, I was grandfathered in at 20. When I turned 21 was when it became nationwide drinking age of 21, but I could drink at 20. I had my typical stumbles, you know, drinking too much, getting sick, a lot of the same behavior with alcohol as I had in high school. Sometimes it was worse because, you know, I don't have to go home to my mother and make believe I'm sober. Sometimes not so bad because 
the drinking was much more social. It wasn't sitting in a car drinking to get drunk. You know, if there was a party, you were at a party. So you spent some time talking to people and dancing and, and eating and catching up. You know, it wasn't like you were sitting, sitting someplace just drinking to get drunk. So it was much more social drinking. And I was also, as usual, very, very good at not drinking when I shouldn't. So I didn't drink or drag meats. If Joni said, all right, it's the, it's the season, it's the championship season, no drinking, I didn't drink. So I made it through that cross-country season relatively healthy. I do remember I oftentimes would hurt myself in the fall. I started every fall healthy. And I think three of the four falls ended up injured. Indoor track came. And remember, my freshman year, I had not been able to run. And so I could not wait because I really am a track athlete. And I had not shown anyone what I was capable of yet on the track as a BU runner. I felt like a failure in so many ways. And so the winter of 1983, everything really started to click for me. I know that Joni was getting a lot of her workouts from Bob Seventy, and he was, you know, coach extraordinaire. She also is a student of the sport. So she was learning and learning and learning. And so I went through lots of training over Christmas break. I ran a couple of track meets at Hanover at Dartmouth Relays and those things before even getting back to college to BU. And the winter of 1983 was my best season ever as an athlete at BU. So it's sort of sad now to know that my my sophomore year indoor track season was one of my best. I had other very successful seasons, but that one stands out because I made All-American. So a lot of our track meets were at Harvard University, which had a beautiful track. And this was no different. So when I think back to this track season, I think of Harvard and I think of that beautiful indoor track. And I ran a distance called 1,000 meters in 80 yards or 800 meters, which is a half a mile, and then 200 meters more. So if you're on an outdoor track, it's two and a half laps. And that's the distance that I ran I ran for this, this race. So you had to run an 800 and then keep going. And so I remember training and this was the event that I was closest to qualifying for indoor nationals in. I considered myself a miler, but I really was still a good chunk behind runners of my ability in the mile. As much as I loved it, my 800 times were okay. Probably had I focused more on the distance, I would have been a much better 5K runner. But I really fancied myself a 4x4, 4x8, 1500 meter run, a real middle distance. That was my role on our team. It was at the Easterns and I ran a thousand, a thousand yards. And I remember going through the 800 in two minutes and 13 seconds. So that was my personal best in the 800 at that time. I didn't run that fast. And I ran like a 232 in the thousand yard run and qualified for the Nationals. And it was the happiest day of my life. There was a, a restaurant, it's still there actually on Com Ave in Boston called T. Anthony's. It's a pizza place. You know, steak and cheese subs are amazing there. And we would often eat there after track meets. And so I remember the track team going there. And there were a handful of us that made it. Julie White made it in the high jump. There were a couple of throwers that made it. And I made it in the, in the thousand. So it was amazing. It was just this huge accomplishment for me. I remember it was on ABC Wide World of Sports. My grandmother, we went to watch it. And when I showed up at my grandmother's house, she had her little camera so she could take pictures of the, the TV when I was running on it. Oh my gosh. Because there was no such thing as a VCR then. This is what I'm talking about. There was no recording something on TV. If the TV station only showed it live and didn't record it, it was gone forever once it was over. So of course, this was a recording. I probably could find it somewhere. So I went to Detroit. The Nationals were at the Silverdome, which no longer exists, a big indoor sports facility that was in Detroit, Michigan, and ran a thousand meters. And I got fit. And I think there were like, you know, nine or 10 of us that qualified. And in track and field, the top six in an event who are American earn All-American. And I think everyone in my race is American. I think anyone now can earn All-American. You don't have to actually be an American citizen. I think it's just your place now. 
think that was a process. So I was an All-American, a Division I All-American. I was Boston University's first female Division I All-American. Joni Benoit Samuelson wrote a book and that's in there. <laughs> I'm going to give myself a Hall of Fame plug, not in BU's Hall of Fame, but that's okay. So I remember coming home from that and just feeling like I had arrived. And then going into spring track, I had some ups and downs. I had a hamstring and hip sort of soreness and injury that got in my way a little bit. I ran, but I continued to improve. I ran close to my PR in the mile. I improved in my 800 again and again. I had a lot of improvement in events around the 1500 in the mile. My high school time stayed my best times for a couple of years there. I had an improvement in the 3000. I, I ran the relays a lot. Our outdoor meets often happened at Boston College and they don't even have a track anymore. And their track was unique because it was an oversized oval. But what being All-American did for me confidence-wise and as an athlete in the eyes of the administrators at BU and all of those in the track community was tremendous because I suddenly felt like I'd earned my keep. You know, I did it. I was worth the scholarship. You know, Marty and I, of that seven, Marty and I were the only two All-Americans. She would get it the following fall in cross country. So she was the second female All-American to the BU. To New Hampshire girls, you know, <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's me and Marty all the way sometimes. As much as I struggled in the spring, I did have a good season. I remember this was the first time I ever went to Philadelphia to the Penn Relays. If you're a track and field fan and you're listening to this, you know how big that track meet is. And I ran the 3,000. <laughs> I got put in the 3,000, which was fine. You know, that was all right. I don't know that I did very well. I do know that I had such a good time. I loved it. I loved running in it. I was excited to be considered, you know, good enough to go. I went a few more times to that track meet. It was awesome. So good. So I finished my sophomore year and now I'm an All-American. So the other big piece of my sophomore year before I get into summer is David. So, you know, I talk a lot about how life has brought me to terrible people that have hurt me and been hurtful. And sometimes it's the accidental luck of the universe. I think sometimes the part of me that's broken looks for the dangerous people. The part of that's broken and the dangerous person seeks out people like me. And I hope that makes sense because some of my most upsetting and damaging relationships. I'm the perfect person for people that treat their significant others or their children or their family members that way. David was as good as they come. We knew each other just because we ran, you know, we ran together. Also, he came from a town right outside of Boston called Newton. And as the track team started to spend more time together, David lived in that really cool apartment that was right next door to my apartment. So that year, the social hub of the track and field team was at 714 Com Ave. It was famous. We used to sing 714. Anyway, as wild and crazy as I was, and I had a bit of a reputation for drinking too much and being that girl sometimes at parties, I kissed a lot of people in college. <laughs> there was also a part of me that was just incredibly tender and I really liked David. And I liked him for, for a long time, even from the very beginning when we first met as freshmen at our running camp. You know, you notice people, but you don't do anything with it because you're not ready and they're not there for you or whatever. But I really, really liked him. He was, he was just a kind, kind person. Now, the tricky part is the track and field community is small, you know, so I had spent some time sort of on again, off again, dating the brother of one of his best friends who was his roommate. And so that wasn't a secret. You know, people knew that knew about that. It's one of those things you have to sort of live up to or live down your reputation. And I enjoyed being in a relationship and I really, really liked David. And so we started sort of spending time together and it was the weekend of New England's February 20th, 1983. And New England's were in Connecticut. And I don't remember all the details. I just do remember that we decided that we would become boyfriend and girlfriend. And, and it was one of those romantic weekends that 
I'm not going to go into details here, <laughs> but it will stand out for me forever and always because it was in actuality, the first like normal, healthy relationship I had. David wasn't 10 years older than me. David wasn't my biology teacher. He was just a really nice guy. And we started dating and I always, always felt like I couldn't believe he wanted to go out with me. You know, it was one of those things. David was very quiet and shy. Sometimes I, well, maybe in public, he was quiet and shy, but among his friends, he was, he was as much the life of the party as anybody. And he was an amazing runner. He got so close to four minutes, 401 in the mile. He was unbelievably dedicated to his family, still is. Now, one thing I love about his family, and I can't talk about the whole relationship because it didn't happen in my sophomore year. Very, very family oriented. I love, love, love following his siblings on Facebook. And I'm still friendly with a lot of people from that relationship because we were together on and off for over seven years. And then we reconnected maybe 10 years later after that. So he was a huge piece of, actually a huge piece of what's okay in me. And we got to know each other that spring. And so from February, the end of indoor and all of outdoor, and then into the summer, we became close. It's just such a happy time for me because it was just so regular. And the parts of me that always felt so broken, he and that relationship was something that made me feel like I was okay. So I go home for the summer and it's the summer of 83 and I'm working for Parks and Rec and my friend Sally's home and she's got this wonderful boyfriend, I think his name was Ted, and he's in, you know, in the Midwest somewhere and she's here. So we're both in Concord and we just miss our boyfriends and she was working at like a day camp at the Y. And so we were just super busy all the time. We run together at night, sometimes in the pitch black, Sally and I. And I remember it was 4th of July and David had made these plans to go away with David and went to the Cape. And it was this amazing thing because I didn't know about Cape Cod at all other than cross-country camp. And you know, when you grew up in the Boston area, going down the Cape is a huge piece of your life. I had a chance to do that. And I remember leaving and I didn't tell Sally I was going. And she came over, you know, cut through the backyard to go running with me. And my mother's like, oh, she's gone for three days. And she was so hurt. And there was no way to call. There was no phone number for her to call me. I was on the Cape and David and all of his friends rented these little cottages. There were these little dumpy cottages. They were awesome. I'm sure they don't exist anymore. I'm sure there's some big giant mansion there now. It was called Pinewood Village and it was in Harwich. And we would go down there. We would basically sleep in my car because I had this giant car at the time. This felt the 88-year-olds would be a ridiculously huge car. That was summer of 83, but I felt bad for Sally. When I came home, she was upset with me. I don't blame her. How can I blame her? That was sad for her. And Sally and I spent a ton of time that summer together. We ran together every day. She was improving so much as a runner. If you can talk of an athlete that gets the most out of their genetic box, Sally Zach Enderstadt is that person. She was an amazing gymnast. She was a figure skater and worked really hard at it and then found gymnastics. And she was able to go off on a gymnastics scholarship to college. And she had injuries that ended the gymnastics career. And so she began running. And then she ran elite track for Southern Illinois University. And then she got into cycling and made two Olympic teams. And then she married an amazing skier. We lost contact for a long time later, but she got big into Nordic skiing. And I'm quite sure she was probably pretty darn amazing at that as well. She really is the exemplary athlete. She just has a body that's made to be athletic. I think I do too. You know, I'm talking about it when I realize, okay, people could say that about me as well. But we spent that whole summer together. So I would go down and see David and come home. I had my parks and recreation job. We'd go running. And the world championships of track and field were on the summer of 1983. And so, of course, it wasn't like now where things can stream on the internet and YouTube. There was no internet and YouTube. And so you had to watch it on network television. And with the time change, the races would be on like at 11 at night. And so we started running at night. We were running until late at night so that we'd be awake, so we could watch the track meets. Or they'd be on at the time in the evening we'd run, and then we'd have to go running afterwards. Super, super fun summer. I stayed super committed to David. 
that was just a really, really important summer for me. I do remember Dolly turned 21 that summer and I turned 20. We connected with a group of friends and actually it was right near Amesbury, Massachusetts. It was in that whole area. So it's funny, I'm so connected to it now. And we told our parents, okay, we'll just, we're going out for the night. We didn't come back for like two days. <laughs> just hooked up with a group of friends. It was like one of those serendipitous things where, where we just connected and then we ran into people we knew and we ended up having this pretty fun, bingy sort of weekend. It was a blast. And that was me turning 20 and Sally turning 21. And then off we went back to college and back to our respective lives and, and what awaited us and off into my now would be my junior year. When I look at timestamps and how I mark time, when I packed up my dorm room and took everything home with me in December of 1981 to the summer of 1983, so 18 months later, you know, a year and a half, so much good happened, so much good. I was able to extricate myself from a relationship that wasn't bad. It just didn't lend itself to what the life I was trying to build. I found and fell in love with a wonderful human being who I'll talk about a lot in the next couple of episodes and had this started this amazing relationship that cost David a lot of pain. I will preface it with that. And my running, my running turned around and I suddenly felt like I deserved the scholarship I was getting. Junior year brought with it a lot of changes and I'll get into that a bit, but just a little preface, coaching changes, training changes, team dynamic changes, lots of things changed junior year. And, you know, those were mostly for the good thing. So this is a great place for me to end. So if this particular episode has a message, I guess I would reiterate that my life is just a series of things go well, things fall apart. Things go well or things fall apart. And this chunk of time for me was good. I had a very sad breakup with Jay, but I found and fell in love with David, who you know affects my life to this day. And all of the things that go into finding your niche, finding where do I fit in, you know, where do I belong, and feeling like I mattered and that my teammates liked me and that, that I was accepted and I was one of them. I was one of a group of people and I loved it. So sort of like my senior year was, you know, ended up very, very good, even though I had some upsets in it. You're on cloud nine and it goes back to my vigilance as an abuse survivor. When things get good, you gotta start paying attention because they're gonna get bad soon. And my junior year brought with it trials and tribulations. So as always, I really want to thank you all for listening. If you're not a Division One athlete or a track and field runner or a runner or whatever, these years might not be that interesting to you. I was consumed as a runner. It was everything I was. I was a Division One All-American, full scholarship, track and field athlete in Boston and all that went with that. And there was a lot of pressure for that. It was a full-time job and it was difficult sometimes, but I would not trade it for anything. I'm an incredibly lucky human being. In about 12 minutes, I have a, a meeting with my editor. I'm leaving in a couple of days to head off on a vacation that will have long been over by the time you hear this. You know, as always, I hope that you're all taking good care of yourselves. Please, please reach out and leave a leave a review. I would love to up my podcast listens. And I think sometimes reviews help that a little bit and share it with people and share with me. Share with me your athletic stories. What did you do? What's your passion? What do you love? What trials and tribulations have you had in your journey to today? <laughs> so anyways, as always, be good to yourself. Do something really good for yourself before you do something kind for someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.